1 Corinthians 4, 7 asks, What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? And what could you say to that? And you sit and you think about your life, and you think, yeah, what do I have that wasn't gifted to me? What do I have that I didn't actually receive? What do I actually have going on in my life that is purely the result of my own ingenuity or my own effort or something inherent in me? Could you point to your wealth? Say, yes, I've worked really hard. I've been really, really smart. I've got a great work ethic. I've made good investments and good decisions, and that's what's gotten me to here. Well, that might be true, but of course, if we just kind of work our way backward, we have to ask questions like this. Who is it that gave you the brain power? Who is it that gave you the particular personality that you have and the people skills that you have? Who is it that has blessed you with the opportunities that have led you to where you're at? Namely, being in a Society like the United States where making money and doing well for yourself is much easier than many parts of the world. Perhaps you could point to your family and say, this is my family. This is what I've created. Well, how true is that? Who is it that brought you and your spouse together? I can't be the only one in this church who looks in the mirror and concludes that it's a miracle that my wife picked me. And Joe and I cannot be the only ones who look in the mirror and think that it's a miracle. Who brought you and your spouse together? And what's more, who gave you the gift of children? You're not responsible for that. Whatever family you have, God has blessed you with that. God has provided that to you. And don't get me started with your looks. You might say, aha, I got you, pastor. I got my looks from my mama. Well, that might be true, but why is it that you have the form and that you have the features that you possess and not other ones? And who has protected you all these years from accident or illness that could have completely altered the way that you look? Guys, we could do this all day long. We could just keep going through all the different things in our lives that we could think, well, you know what, I'm responsible for that, and we can just show how actually at the end of the day, you're not ultimately responsible for what's going on in your life. And as we continue to try to look at other things, guess what? The, the list is going to get mighty short of, of the things that you did not receive, the things that you've earned on your own. And in fact, we're going to whittle that list all the way down to just one basic thing. The one thing that you have earned, the one thing that you can be uh, glad to take full responsibility about and say, this is my doing, is you have earned judgment. That's it. That's the only thing coming to you that, that, that God's not responsible for, and actually you are. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, and death is the preeminent consequence for sin in the world. Of course, wages are what you earn. And so Paul there is making the argument that what we all have earned through our sin through our disobedience, through our thinking that we know better than the Lord himself, as we've ultimately earned judgment in the form of death. That's what we've earned. And so anything and everything good in your life, all the things that put a smile on your face, everything that causes your heart to rejoice is a gift that has come to you from God. 
The title of this morning's sermon is No Good Apart From You. No Good Apart From You. I'm taking this from the declaration of verse 2 in Psalm 16, where David says so much, I have no good apart from you. In this psalm, we're going to learn this truth that we have no good apart from God by looking at 10 things that come from God, and they are all good. The psalm begins, as many others have begun for us in the Psalter, with David crying out with a request to the Lord. This is what's drawing him to the Lord, and he cries out in verse 1, and he says, Preserve me, O God. Preserve me, O God, or keep me safe is what that means. And this brings us to the first good thing that comes from the hand of the Lord. Safety comes from God. At the end of the day, safety comes from God. Now, what is the danger that David needs to be kept safe from, that he needs to be preserved from in this psalm? Well, it appears from verse 10 that the danger is death. There is some A real and present danger in David's life that seems to be threatening him and he's concerned that he's going to die. He's going to, by the time we get to verse 10, move to a position of confidence where he trusts that the Lord's not going to let him die. But that seems to be the thing that's drawing him to prayer. So he's saying, preserve me, Lord. Keep me safe, Lord, because I don't want to die. There's some real risk out there. This should remind all of us that life and death are in God's hands. The Lord gives and he takes away. God is the one who raises up and God's the one who sets down. And God alone is able to keep his people safe. Sure, we can do a lot of different things to not be foolish. We can do a lot of different things to mitigate risk. But without God protecting us and God keeping us safe, all of those things are in vain. You can look to Daniel chapter 3. And the famous story of Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and anybody know the third one? Abednego. Man, you guys are great at Bible trivia. I heard at least 60% of the church say that like that. That's awesome. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So in Daniel 3, remember King Nebuchadnezzar has erected a statue of himself. And he's made a declaration that everybody needs to bow down and worship before this statue And so they kind of get all the music ramped up and the band's doing their thing and it's this huge celebration and then it's the countdown, like one, two, three, and everybody bows down before the statue. So you just see a sea of people. They all bow down and there's these three young Jewish boys who are just kind of standing there and looking around like, you think they see us? Totally busted. And so they get brought before Nebuchadnezzar and he's like, you know what, I'm a gracious person. I'm gonna give you one more shot at this. And if you don't bow down, you're going to get thrown into that fiery furnace. And here's the thing that they say. Here's where their confidence is. Daniel 3.17. These young Jewish men look at the most powerful ruler in that region. And they say this, if this be so, if you throw us in the furnace, they say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us. Out of your hand, O king. Guess what? He does. God saves them from the burning, fiery furnace. Getting back to verse 1, notice that David, after calling on the Lord to keep him safe, he says that God is the one that he takes refuge in. God is the one that he takes refuge in. 
So David here pictures God like a stronghold or a fortress that you can run into for safety in a moment of crisis. The danger is there and God's like this fortress or this castle that David says he can run to and take refuge inside of. So the point here is that safety comes from God. Well, after this initial request in verse 1, everything else in Psalm 16 becomes a psalm of confidence or a psalm of trust. We're going to see that David is not waffling back and forth in Psalm 16. He's just going to start unloading on us all of these good blessings that come to him because of his trust in a good God. Now, why does David look to and trust in the Lord? I just mentioned it. It's because he's a good God. And this brings us to the second thing, which is that good comes from God. Now, I already made this point in my introduction, so I'm not going to belabor it here. But David does say, I have no good apart from you. Now, some people live in such a way that they are shocked anything, or anytime anything bad happens to them. Like, oh my gosh, how could I have a hardship in my life? Everything should just be smooth and awesome. Family, I would submit to you that happier is the person who is pleasantly surprised anytime something good happens to them. Like, we live in a world that is broken because of sin. We live in a world that is hard. We live in a world, and in our own little world, that is, that is broken because of our own sin, because of the own, or our own things that we contribute to it. And so bad things are going to happen in this life. We should be a people who whenever something good, something wonderful, something that puts a smile on our face happens to us, we should say, wow, look at how good God is. He's blessed us in this way and it should cause us to be a worshipful people. Again, as I already said, the only thing that we've earned in this life is judgment. So every day that you're living this life and good things are coming to you, that should cause us to trace that back to the hand of a good and loving father. James puts it this way in James 1.17. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Not the majority of gifts, not some gifts. He says, every good gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights. So good itself is what comes to us from God. Number three, in verse three, notice that a delightful family comes from God. Some of you are like, man, we had trouble getting to church this morning. I would take that. I could use a delightful family. Well, I'm not exactly talking about our nuclear family, although that's true as well. Look at what he says in verse three. David writes, "Is for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. In whom is all my delight? Notice that the first thing that David's mind goes to here, after talking about how every good thing that he has has come from God, the first thing that his mind goes to here when thinking about the ways that God has been good to him is the people of God, the family of God, the church, other Christians. David looks out and he sees the faithful in the land and he says, man, it's, in, it, it's through them, it's in them that is all my delight. He delights in the people of God. He sees the church. He sees the people of God. 
as a great blessing. And family, it's true. One of the greatest earthly blessings for the Christian is the family of God. It's other believers. It's this church family. Why is that the case? Well, they are the ones who love what you love. They're the ones who are on the same journey in life that you and your family are on. They're the ones who encourage you in your faith. They're the ones who share God's word with you. They're the ones who serve your needs. They're the ones who are praying for you. They're the ones who are watching over your soul so that you don't go down the wrong paths. What a blessing the family of God is. We should delight in the family of God. When you come to church and you see other people that are worshiping the Lord with you, does it put a smile on your face? When you think about those who are in the church body with you, does your heart rejoice? One easy way to check your spiritual temperature is to see if you, in fact, delight in God's people. I'm not talking about every person who professes to be a Christian out there. No, I'm talking about genuine, authentic Christians, people who have put their faith in Christ, have been converted, are bearing fruit, who are pursuing Jesus. Do people like that cause your heart to rejoice? Do you love being around people like that? Do they energize you? If so, that's a good indicator that you are, in fact, delighting in the Lord himself. Notice the contrast now in verse 4. Verse 3 ends on the note of delight, but look at verse 4. It begins on a different note. It begins on the note of sorrow. He says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So David here is saying that sorrow is reserved for those who chase after other gods. David is expressing the truism that idolatry equals misery. And so David says, hey, those aren't my people. I'm not going to participate in what they're doing. Remember, his, his soul is delighting in the godly in the land. And so as he sees people in the land running after idols, David's saying, I'm not going to do what they're doing. I'm not going to pour out those pagan uh, worship offerings. I'm not doing that. I'm faithful to the Lord. Those aren't my people. Idolatry equals misery. There's an echo here in verse 4 of Genesis 3.16. Genesis chapter 3, of course, is the fall where Adam and Eve decide to look to someone else, to look to something else, namely the promises of Satan. They, look, they decide to look to those promises to find joy and happiness, and instead what they find is misery and suffering. And so God judges them. And here's when God speaks to Eve, Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Adam and Eve's decision to turn away from the Lord, to look to someone else for happiness, led to the multiplication of sorrow rather than the joy that it was promising. And that's what always happens with idolatry. If money is your God, if that's the thing that is driving your life, if that's what your purpose is, is to make money, guess what? You might just succeed. And then what will happen? You'll become a greedy person, a stingy person, 
a selfish person like old Scrooge on a Christmas carol. And because of that, you'll, you'll likely find yourself lonely and miserable. If position is your God, it's all about achieving status, then guess what? You're going to overwork. You're going to step on people. You're going to do whatever it takes to climb the ladder. And when you finally achieve your dream, you're going to learn that it's lonely at the top. And a lot of the people around you are not going to trust you. They're not going to respect you because they're going to see all the bad decisions that you made and all the things that you did and all the things that you sacrificed to gain position. If your kids are your God, you'll do anything and everything to make them happy. You'll never put your foot down. You'll never say no. And you'll likely raise entitled kids who will be insufferable as adults. Not to mention that someday when those kids who have been your world, that you've been worshiping, that you've been serving for 18 years, when they grow up, they're going to move out. And when they do, you're going to be miserable. And those empty nesting years will be more difficult than they have to be because your entire life, all of your value, all of your worth was wrapped up in seeing them succeed, seeing them do well. Now, it's important to note here that the people who are battling idolatry that David's talking about, these are what you could call syncretists, not pagans. Syncretism means that these were not non-Jewish people. These, these, these are people who are blending two different religions or, or more, blending different belief systems. What I'm trying to say is that these were Jewish people who on one hand worshiped Yahweh. They performed the sacrifices. They went through all of the rituals, but they also decided to hedge their bets a little bit and have some Canaanite gods too. So Baal, Asherah, and they were going and participating in some of those sacrifices and those worship practices as well. So as long as Yahweh is giving me what I want and what I think I need, awesome, I'm faithful to Yahweh. But when this isn't working out, why not go worship Baal? Maybe he can give me some good things. Maybe he can bless me in my life. So they're not outright pagans. It was Yahweh plus something else. And this is an ongoing temptation for those of us who name the name of Christ. It's not that we don't fancy ourselves Christians. It's not that we don't go to church. It's not that we don't pray to the Lord Jesus Christ, but the temptation becomes Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus money or power or hobbies or sex or whatever else. And these things all make wonderful gifts, but they make terrible gods. None of those things are bad in and of themselves, but all of those things can become bad when they're raised to the level of functional gods. And so the wise person says with David here in Psalm 16, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. David's heart was firmly fixed on the true God. Well, number four, provision comes from God. We'll pick up in verse five. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He says, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Provision comes from God. David here sees the Lord as the one who would supply his needs. He says, it's the Lord who's my portion. It's the Lord who takes care of me. Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. 
That we would look to God alone as the one who would supply our needs. That we would depend on him. David writes, you hold my lot. Another way to translate that is you make my lot secure. Now, what does that mean? Well, a lot can refer to one of two things. It can either refer to a lot of land, not a lot of land, like a lot that you could purchase of land, or it could refer to your lot in life, kind of metaphorically. So David is saying that God keeps his lot secure. Whatever he has is provided for him by the Lord and it's protected by the Lord. That's the best insurance policy you can have. Now, just as Lot in verse 5 can refer to land or life in general, so too the expression lines in verse 6. So David is either in verse 6 saying that the lines or the boundary markers that God has given him in the promised land have landed in pleasant places. Okay, God's people viewed the whole promised land as the land that flows with milk and honey. Lord, if you give me, if you give me anything in, in, in your promised land, it is pleasant. This is the sweetest strip of land, namely because God himself is there. But David could also be referring metaphorically to the idea that the lines or the boundaries of his life that God has allotted for him have fallen in pleasant places. David sees that God has provided for him in delightful ways. And the same is true for Christians today. Paul writes in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So our provision comes from the Lord. Number five is also from verse six. And it's the idea that contentment comes from God. Contentment comes from God. I think sometimes when we read the Bible and we look at the life of King David, we think, man, this guy had an awesome life. His life was amazing. And there's truth to that. I mean, he was the king of Israel, the most significant king. He was a mighty warrior. He was an amazing poet. He lived an incredible life. But we lose sight of the fact that in real time, as David lived his life, his life was filled with so many hardships, so many trials, so many catastrophes. Let me just rattle off a few for you. David's life didn't begin magnificently. He was raised as an obscure shepherd's son. He was the runt of the litter among his brothers. So he has all these older brothers and they're the, they're the star athletes. They're the brains of the family. And David just left out in the field. Probably dealt with those feelings of inadequacy. You might remember he got in a street fight with a bully named Goliath one time. He had murder attempted on him on more than one occasion. Remember, Saul literally took a spear and threw it at him and tried to pin him to a wall on more than one occasion. He was public enemy number one in Israel for years, and he had to live life on the run. In fact, he had to flee to a foreign land and seek asylum from a foreign government. He had marital problems with a wife who mocked him and ridiculed him. He committed adultery and murder. He had children die young, and he had one of his sons revolt against him and try to have him killed. And yet, through all of it, David experienced God's faithfulness. Instead of ever allowing bitterness to take control of his heart, David 
was not going to sit and look and say, man, the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence. No, David was able to look at his life and say of it that the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Why? Because he says, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David was able to look forward and say, even though my life has been filled with many challenges, my future is eternally bright. I have a wonderful inheritance stored up for me. And the joy of knowing that God has a beautiful future secured for him is the same joy that we experience when we realize that God has a beautiful future stored up for us. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, Paul says, So we do not lose heart. He's talking about immense suffering in context. He says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Like David, Paul had a very difficult life. Experienced a ton, a ton of suffering. But Paul, in the spirit, is able to say there is an eternal weight of glory that so outweighs the challenges of this life that he looked at all of his suffering and he just calls it a light momentary affliction. Talk about perspective. And so David here experiences great contentment from the Lord, and you can have that as well. Number six, David shows us that counsel comes from God. We see this in verse seven, that counsel comes from God. Let me fix what the wind is doing here. Verse seven, he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. With every turn that life took, David sought counsel from the Lord. How did he do this? The same ways you and I do. Number one, David was a man of the word. David was a man who consumed this book. He loved it. He delighted in it. The law of the Lord was on his lips and in his heart constantly. He was trying to seek counsel from God. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be in Psalm 19. Here's just an excerpt. Here's what David says there about the word of God. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than Bitcoin, I mean than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. He was a man of the word. He loved it. It's like honey to his lips. Consumed it constantly. Not only that, David was a man of prayer. How do we know? Answer, the Psalter. <laughs> the book we're studying is littered with written prayers from the heart of this man who was a man after God's own heart. No wonder David received counsel from the Lord. No wonder even in the night when oftentimes anxiety is getting the best of us and we're tossing and we're turning and what's going to come tomorrow? David says even in the night his heart instructed him because his heart was on the Lord and it was 
filled with the word of God. Well, Christian, the Holy Spirit is called our helper in John 14, 26. And according to John 16, 13, he leads us in to all truth. So we have an ever-present counselor and we have God's word. James 1, 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. How often do you take God up on that promise? How often do you say, Lord, I need wisdom. Will you counsel me? Some Christians would rather talk to 10 other people, listen to two sermons, read five articles, than they would spend 15 minutes with the Lord saying, God, how about you give me counsel? Then they wonder why they lack wisdom. Counsel comes from the Lord. Number seven, stability comes from God. We're seeing this in verse eight. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. On Wednesday morning, I went hiking with Ryan and our friend Aaron. And we got to a really steep part on the trail. And one of us said, this would be a great spot to have a walking stick. You know what I'm saying? Like in your right hand, you can just kind of have a walking stick to keep you stable. Now, I won't say who said that to embarrass anybody. All I'll say is it wasn't me or Aaron. I'm, honestly, I'm just kidding. I can't even remember who said it. But. but when life gets shaky, notice that David sees the Lord as the one who's at his right hand. David sees the Lord as the one who stabilizes him and upholds him and keeps him from becoming shaky in his life. At times, even the strongest people buckle under the weight of life's circumstances. But the Christian has strength outside of themselves. We don't have to just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We don't have to just bear down and try to get through it. We have a strength outside of ourselves. When life gets too hard to stand, the righteous are propped up by the rock of our salvation. Isaiah was able to say in Isaiah chapter 40, that even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Okay, number eight, earthly joy comes from God. We see this in verse nine. David says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. It's been said that whenever we see a therefore in the Bible, we should ask what it's Therefore, right? So why does David write, therefore? Well, he's saying, in light of everything we've just talked about, now let me say this. So David is saying, in light of the goodness of God, all of these amazing things that I'm unpacking here in Psalm 16, he says, in light of all of that, therefore, he says, I'm going to rejoice. As David looked back at all of God's goodness toward him, everything in him, his entire being is led to rejoice. Now, of course, this is supposed to be the posture of every believer's life, right? Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, or I'm sorry, in Philippians 4.4, he writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Now, our joy increases as we recount God's goodness toward us. The better that you get at, the better that I get at, 
recounting God's blessings and benefits and goodness toward us, the more joy we're going to experience. And so it's a great practice to daily sit and think about, upon God's goodness to you as a believer. Now, some of us this morning are going through hard, difficult seasons. And you're going through trials. And maybe you look at your life right now and you say, I'm struggling to find things that I can rejoice about in my life. Well, friend, I would say start with the cross and then work outward from there. Look to Calvary where the Lord Jesus willingly and lovingly and gladly laid down his life as a sacrifice for your sins so that you could be forgiven and so that you could be reconciled to God and so that you could be a recipient of good things from the hands of a good father. Start with the cross and work out from there. Number nine, eternal life comes from God. Look at verse 10. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, at first glance, it seems that David is referring here to how God would not let him die, that God was going to protect him and see him through whatever this threat was to his life. In other words, David is confident that God is going to answer the prayer of verse 1. Remember where he said, preserve me, keep me safe. Now it seems that he's confident that God will do that. And it's true that this is what David has in mind at one level in verse 10. But there are two reasons for us to believe that the Holy Spirit is speaking through David about more than just preserving earthly life. That the Holy Spirit is speaking through David about providing eternal life. Here are the two reasons. Number one, notice that verse 11 talks about how at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Forevermore. In other words, David is clearly thinking about how life with God produces joy now, but that that joy extends throughout all of eternity, that it extends forevermore. And number two, and more importantly, the reason why number 10, or verse 10 rather, is pointing to life beyond the grave is because of the expression at the end of it, see corruption. Now, literally in the Hebrew, the word there is translated the pit. It refers to the grave. Most often, that is the way to interpret the Hebrew phrase there. But it can also, in certain circumstances, refer to decay or decomposition or corruption as it's translated here. Now, in the New Testament, the apostles of Jesus interpret Psalm 1610 that way. And the reason is because they see that Psalm 1610 was ultimately pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, who would be raised from the dead. Here's Peter in Acts chapter 2. Peter says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord, or I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. 
For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Let me pause. Notice David is applying Psalm 16, not just verse 10, Psalm 16 to Jesus. But he's going to interpret verse 10, starting in 29. He says, brothers, this is him preaching a sermon. He says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and we are all witnesses. So Peter looks at Psalm 1610 and he sees that Hebrew word as meaning corruption. And he says, this is what that was pointing to. That the Messiah would not decompose in the grave, but that God would raise him to life. Paul makes the same argument in Acts 13. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Now he's going to interpret it. Paul says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So here's what I'm trying to say. Although... This was not immediately true for David, right? He died and his body did decompose. It would ultimately be true for him, just as it will ultimately be true for every single one of us who have placed our faith in the resurrected Christ. Through Jesus' resurrection, not one of us will be abandoned to Sheol. Not one of us will see corruption. Instead, someday in the not-too-distant future, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Eternal life comes from God. And it's ours by faith in the resurrected Christ. And because we have eternal life, it only makes sense that we have the final good thing in this psalm. Number 10, eternal joy. Eternal joy comes from God. And we're going to end here. Here's what he says in verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now life is filled with sorrows. We all know that. Jesus said as much. He said, in this world you will have tribulation. And the sorrows of our life, whatever they might be, what they do to us is they produce an aching inside of us for resolution and for joy. Blaise Pascal famously wrote, all people seek happiness. 
He said this is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. There's a reason why all of our best stories end with, and they lived happily ever after. That's, that's the resolution that all of our souls are longing for. Everything that doesn't work out in this life creates that aching, that sense of, man, this can't be the way that my story ends. It's got to end happily. Well, guess what? The story does end happily. And God has hardwired joy into every single one of our hearts. There's a reason we pursue happiness. The problem is, for most people, we pursue it in the wrong place. We're all seeking happiness. And family, in the end, this is exactly what God offers. God is the happiest being in existence. You could say God is perfectly happy. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, this perfectly happy being invites us into his presence where you and I get to experience perfect love and infinite joy forevermore. There's no end to it. And of this good, all of the other goods that we've talked about and all of the other goods that we haven't pale in comparison. As much joy as we experience from all of the other good gifts that God gives to us in this life, they are all com combined like a candle to the sun in comparison to the joy to be had in the presence of God for all of eternity. So in closing, again, I say to you this morning, the wise person says with David, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Let's pray.